Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Lauren and I are particularly excited for today's show because not only do we have... Wait, Lauren, are you listening to country music during the show? I mean, this is just the first time you can actually hear it. (laughs) Well, that was the song One Beer by the singer Hardy featuring Lauren Elena and Devin Dawson. I have added it to my summer playlist and I just can't stop listening to it. Which Lauren was kind enough to share with me. I can blame Lauren for a lot of my random music binges, starting with Kanye West. Blame, I'm. you mean thank, right? Yeah, right. That's exactly what I meant. Thank, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've definitely expanded your music choices, Virginia. But I love this song, One Beer, because it actually has this really powerful pro-life message. And our friend Emily Jasinski over at The Federalist wrote this really great piece about the song entitled One Beer is Country's New Pro-Life Compliment to Red Ragtop. If you don't remember the song Red Ragtop, it's a country music song from the 90s, which speaks really pointedly about the pain of abortion um, and, you know, how, how it's a sin and it, and it weighs on you your whole life. And, you know, Hardy's One Beer shows the opposite side. If they had chosen life, and how one thing that you thought was a mistake ends up being the best thing in your life. So uh, I just love it. I, I, I love a good bro country song, but the fact that it, it has just such a good message, uh, you know, makes it probably number one on my summer 2020 playlist. And the music video, oh my goodness, it's absolutely amazing. I was like on the edge of my seat the whole time watching it. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Do it. You won't. You won't. Up on today's Problematic Women, we discussed the destruction of America's statues and a recent op-ed in the New York Post called them 1619 riots. Dr. Carol Swain, award-winning author, host of Be the People podcast, joins us to share her perspective on the mob riots. Plus, we take a listen to Students for Life's new video, hashtag why it's important to build up African-American communities. And we talk with Petrina Mosley about engaging minority communities with the message of life, regardless of political leanings. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcast and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. All over America, statues are being torn down and vandalized. At first, it was just statues of men who had served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, like Robert E. Lee. But now it appears that no statue is safe. On Friday, rioters pulled down a statue of Ulysses S. Grant in San Francisco. Keep in mind that Grant was the general who led the Union troops to victory in the Civil War, ending slavery. Last Thursday, a statue of George Washington was pulled down in Portland, Oregon, and a burning American flag was laid on top of it. Statues of Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, Francis Scott Key, and many others have also been torn down or defaced. At this point, there appears to be no rhyme or reason to which statues are being targeted. It's just mob rule. There's a statue of George Washington that was pulled down in Portland, Oregon, and it had the year 1619 spray painted on it. 
1619 is when the first slave ship arrived in America, and the significance of that year has been made broadly known through the New York Times 1619 Project. If you're not familiar with the 1619 Project, it is a series of podcasts, essays, and other written materials that ultimately really have one goal, to portray America as a racist nation and declare 1619 as the true founding of America instead of 1776 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Our colleague, Jarrett Stepman, wrote a great piece about the 1619 Project back in May entitled, Awarding of Pulitzer Prize to the Deeply Flawed 1619 Project, highlights what's wrong with many of our institutions. The 1619 Project did win a Pulitzer Prize, despite, as Jarrett wrote, having to issue a correction, which it called a clarification, to the claim that slavery was the one primary reason that colonists fought the American Revolution. And the true bias and even danger of the project was revealed more clearly at the end of last week when Charles Kessler, professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, wrote in the New York Post that the violent riots and destruction of statues should be termed the 1619 riots. And of course, the creator of the 1619 project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, responded to the tweet, it would be my honor. Thank you. The tweet since has been removed. Virginia, you wrote a piece earlier this week talking about the Hannah Jones tweet and the destruction of the statues. What did you find interesting as you looked into the situation? Yeah, so it's a little shocking, but I think, you know, I I just kind of paused after I'd, you know, I'd read all these things um, about it and what Hannah Jones had written and And I just kind of realized, okay, you have to set aside your own politics for a moment and simply look at what she said in that tweet. She said it would be an honor for the destruction of property in America's history to bear the name of her work. If she really means what she said in her tweet, she's embracing violence. And you, you know, you can't correct the sins of the past with sins today. Because where does that lead us? It, it leads us to more division and more frustration between individuals when we're saying that the ultimate goal is, is unity and, and healing and an ability to actually move forward. But our healing and unity as a nation can only occur when we begin to value the life of all people and say that every person is worthy of honor, is worthy of respect, destroying statues, looting, shaming the police, that will only ever feed anger and create deeper wounds that eventually we're going to have to deal with. Virginia, I agree with everything that you just said, and it really shows this was always the end goal of the 1619 Project. They wanted to redefine American history and not show the good in America, but only show the bad. And and that is why history is so important. We need to learn from the bad and we need to take the good and we need to build upon it. And, and America shouldn't be defined by racist moments. We should look at it and say, you know, there were men who fought against slavery. There were men who fought against Jim Crow laws and there were women who fought against Jim Crow laws. And it was those Americans who really we, we need to admire and, and understand where we're coming from and know like we are never going to go back there again. But when we kind of want to destroy all our monuments and we want to start from ground zero and, and destroy all of our institutions, I mean, where does that leave us as Americans and where does that leave our identity and our, our shared history? It kind of just now makes us individual tribes of people who who have no common belief system and no common religion or no comment, you know, like, I just don't know where it takes our country. 
To help us break down this topic even further, we're so pleased to be joined by Carol Swain, award-winning author, host of Be The People podcast, political scientist, and really a true voice of influence in our culture today. Ms. Swain, welcome to Problematic Women. Thank you for having me. You know, right now, I feel like every time I look at the news, I go on this roller coaster of emotions from being angered by the violence and the riots and the destruction of our statues to really kind of being in disbelief over what I'm seeing happening across America to asking the question, okay, what can I do to be a part of positive change? And then ultimately, I just kind of end up feeling a little bit overwhelmed by it all. And I certainly hope I'm not the only one feeling all of those emotions in this season. Would you share some of your own thoughts with us about the moment in history that we find ourselves in? I feel that the moment in history that we are experiencing uh, was predictable. And it was predictable because when we stopped enforcing our immigration laws and when we stopped holding young people accountable for the flash mobs that started uh, doing the Obama era, where you would have hundreds of young teenagers that would go to malls or go into stores and take whatever they wanted off the shelves. And because of their large numbers, it was difficult for law enforcement to respond. And so that was the beginning. And I think with lawlessness, unless you unless you enforce the laws that make us a civilized nation, that it has a snowball effect. And so this moment now where you have so much anarchy, I think the groundwork was laid decades ago when we stopped enforcing our immigration laws. Wow. So that's fascinating to hear you here because I I think, um, you know, for me, I'm kind of looking at at the news and I I do feel surprised by what I'm seeing. But you're saying, no, this, this actually really isn't surprising if you look back at, you know, the past five 10, 15 years. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that in a nation, you're either going to have a nation of law and order or you're not. And when we decided that we did not want to enforce our immigration laws and we allowed people to get away with uh, pretty much whatever they wanted to do in the sanctuary cities and other places, I think that we sort of set new um you know, a new understanding of what kind of society we were, what we were going to tolerate, and others watched. And I believe that the non-enforcement of immigration laws, that encouraged other people to break laws. We ended up, you know, a few years ago with the flash mobs. They did not get a lot of coverage in mainstream media, but in cities across America, you had large numbers of young people, often teens, going into stores, going into malls, and just ripping everything that they could off the shelves. And that did not get the kind of coverage that it deserved. Many of them were minority youth. And I mean, that's a fact. And I think that our failure to deal with with it back then led to this new escalation, this new anarchy. Speaking of anarchy, all across America, we are seeing statues being pulled down by mobs of rioters. And this is all in the name of quote unquote justice. Do you think these acts are actually justice or or something different? 
Well, something different going on. And it's fascinating to me that it's a white person's movement. It may call itself Black Lives Matter or Antifa. But what I see at a lot of the protests and the new rioters or whatever they want to call themselves, many of them are young whites that are probably affluent. They have parents and resources that can get them out of jail. And that, to me, is the most interesting turn of affairs. But it's not so um, uh, surprising if you believe, as I do, that Marxism lies at the root of this unrest and that it really isn't about Black people and justice. It's about people who are political activists and they see an opportunity to advance an agenda that's about them. And it's not about the people who are suffering who have some legitimate grievances. It's not about them. It's about advancing an agenda that it will ultimately be destructive for the United States of America as we know it. Let's expound on that a little bit more. And could you just explain what some of those ramifications are if we kind of continue down this path of allowing for mob rule, allowing for Antifa to pull down historic statues? What's the result of this? Well, first of all, I would say that the activists or the thinkers or the philosophers who are behind the movement, that they have been very clever, very wise, because they have hid themselves behind causes like um, Black people, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is an organization, but it's also a slogan. And most Americans, if not all Americans, agree that black lives matter in the same way that white lives matter. And so they have used that to hide behind. And I think that the consequence we see right now is that the people who would normally enforce law and order, they're reluctant to do it because they don't want to be seen as someone who's not supportive of legitimate grievances that black people or poor people may have. And so just the naming of the movement and calling it social justice has led to ineffectiveness from governmental agencies, from Republicans. And normally you would expect Republicans to stand for law and order, you know, God, country, family. That's been part of the Republican platform. That's been part of who Republicans are. They've stood for law and order. But in the face of a movement, that has been very clever at naming things, I feel that a lot of people feel incapacitated to respond. And so we've set up a situation now where police are not expected to use tear gas against crowds of people when you have mobs. They're not expected to use any any kind of force when they're trying to arrest a person. And we're moving in a direction where it seems like The only way police will be able to arrest someone is if that person willingly gets into the squad car. I don't know how many people, except those of us who obey authority, I would get into the car, I wouldn't fight, um, will get into the car without force. And yet the police are being told that they can't use force. And I think that what's going to happen is what is exactly happening now. Crime is going to escalate there will be fewer police officers to uh, enforce the law. And it's becoming very murky as to what is the law. 
So this year, we've heard a lot about the 1619 Project. You know, it won a Pulitzer Prize. And on last Thursday night, a statue of George Washington was pulled down in Oregon and spray-painted on the bronze statue, among other things, was the year 1619. The New York Post ran an op-ed responding to this titled, Call Them 1619 Riots. And the founder of the project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, responded to the tweet saying, it would be an honor. Thank you. So what is spray painting 1619 on the statue and Hannah-Jones' response tell us about, you know, where our education and what we're teaching our children is in society? Well, first of all, the left, again, they've been very clever at how they have framed things. And with 1619, they're very much open about seeking reparations. And I believe that this moment where you have Antifa and you have Black Lives Matter, a Marxist organization, it's been Marxist from the very beginning, um, they, we have them mainstreamed. And I think that 1619 in many ways, is working hand-in-hand with people that we would call anarchists. And it has to do, again, with the Marxist agenda. They want reparations. They want to get rid of law enforcement. They want to turn society upside down. And I find it very troubling, you know, this whole um, movement about white privilege and racism being permanent and whiteness being property, because I think that if you operate from that framework, then there's no possibility of racial reconciliation and racial uh, harmony, but it takes away responsibility from black people and people of color. And it gives white people, I think too much um, uh, 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 authority or responsibility because they're pretty much saying that, you know, that whiteness is superior to blackness, that whiteness is property itself, that every white person is privileged, that racism is permanent, and that white people have to divest themselves of their whiteness if they want to be acceptable to people of color. And the whole idea of, um, for Americans, in a nation that I think a large percentage of us would say it was uh, formed, you know, on the basis of Judeo-Christian values and principles. And we believe that human beings are in God's image and that God created all races and ethnicities and that we as individuals don't get to choose our parents. We don't get to choose our race or our social class but to demonize one group of people the way the social justice warriors demonize white people at this moment is very troubling, and it is a form of racism, and you cannot have a social justice movement built on racism, yet that's what we have, and we have these troubling images of white people down on their knees begging black people for forgiveness. That is very troubling, and it's a sign that our nation is moving in the wrong uh, direction. And with the tearing down of the monuments, it should have been nipped in the bud a few years ago. Uh, It's very clear to me that there's no ending point in sight. And so you start off with the Confederate generals, and then you end up with Francis Scott Key, George Washington, 
Thomas Jefferson. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's nothing to stop a future generation to decide that Dr. Martin Luther King is not worthy of a monument either or Rosa Parks. We don't know how this is going to end, but I do know that we're headed in the wrong direction and a nation that, you know, forgets its past. I just think it's doomed. And right now we have young people that, and old people too, and those old people that are running corporations that's giving money to Black Lives Matter. We have young people and old people that are contributing to the destruction of what I believe has been the greatest nation on earth. And I've always loved my country. And these people don't know what they're doing because if America falls, I don't think they're going to like what the substitute will be. So where are these these kids who are toppling down the statues and, and you know who make up most of these protests? Where are they learning this information? Is they it- learned it in college. You know, I taught for twenty eight years. I taught um, almost ten at Princeton and um, eighteen years at Vanderbilt. And what I watched was how the universities changed and how. The Marxists, like when I started graduate school, there were Marxist professors. You knew who they were. You wanted to take their courses, you could, but they did not seem to have that much power. Now you see the Marxists running the universities. They're running, they're the deans of of student affairs. And you really have a situation where there's no adults in charge. And you have the social justice warriors from the 1960s that are trying to put in place their vision. They seem to be winning because they purge most campuses of conservative voices and they're depriving America of the historical references and knowledge that we need to remain a nation of laws, a nation that's civilized, a nation that believes that every human being is created in the image of God and that we are brothers and sisters and that reconciliation is possible. It's not possible in a society where you have diversity, inclusion officers, even at private Christian schools, all of them social justice warriors, all of them really pushing uh, Marxism. And whether I don't care what they call it, it's Marxism. It's infiltrated the churches. It's something that um, is like a cancer on America. And I think that we need to wake up. We need to educate um pastors, we need to educate teachers, and we need to educate some of those corporate executives who are giving money to organizations that have as its goal the ultimate destruction of America. I'd like to take a minute and ask you about um, a new piece from the New York Times Magazine. It was actually uh, just released Wednesday by uh, the creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And the piece is entitled, What is Owed? And she writes, if true justice and equality are ever to be to be achieved in the United States, the country must finally take seriously what it owes black Americans. What's what's your response to this piece? And and what are your thoughts on on this kind of of language of saying that the African-American community is really owed something by America? Well, first of all, I have not read the article but I can imagine what she may have said based on uh, just following her writings in the past and her interviews. I think that um, 
the demand for reparations, if the activists are able to to be victorious with this demand, it's not going to change conditions for Blacks. It would be a nightmare to administer. And I stand with those that would say that over the decades that America has, you know, spent trillions of dollars and has constantly been trying to do things that would uplift the descendants of slaves and the victims of Jim Crow racism. And that um, America itself has created enormous opportunities for people of color. It has not always filtered down to the poorest of the poor, but people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, affluent Blacks, many of the ones that are out there, you know, leading the civil rights movement come from middle class. They come from affluent backgrounds. They have had the best of the best of the best education. And, um, and so, you know, like, I think they have black guilt and they suffer from black privilege and they want these things, but what they want would ultimately be destructive for the average for race relations, but also for black people, because it would not address the problems of black on black crime or unwed motherhood or of uh, the abortion rate. And just all those things that are dysfunctional in the black community, the disparities in healthcare uh, outcomes, a lot of that has to do with people's choices. It's not going to address any of the things that uh, would ultimately change people's lives. And so I think that it's a misguided effort. It's part of the um, goal to bring down America. And that it's very unfortunate that the New York Times would get behind an agenda like that. And we're dealing with people who are well-educated and they may be um, educated in propaganda, but they have the ability, they they have the knowledge that they actually could... um, acquaint themselves with a richer view of America. And they could actually tell some of the positive stories that came out of slavery. Uh, The American story, the part of it where you see whites and blacks working together from the very beginning uh, for a better world, a better society. And you think about the white uh, philanthropists that set up schools for the newly freed slaves, the colleges and universities that admitted people Uh, on the basis of merit and not on the basis of race. And so by the 1900s, you had probably about 2,000 Blacks that had graduated from elite colleges and universities that didn't practice discrimination. there, There are Black millionaires that came out of the era of slavery. There have been Blacks that have always been successful and prosperous whenever there was non-discrimination. And you look at Washington, D.C., the black middle class, that black middle class was there because of the civil service test that when people took the test, the job went to the person that had the highest score. When blacks were not discriminated against, they thrived. Before affirmative action, blacks were thriving. And so a lot of the destructive things that have happened in the black community, communities have happened during the 1960s when the society was turned upside down. And for Black America, part of the problem, and this is for white America too, is that we have a moral deficit. We have fallen away from our Judeo-Christian values and principles. And whether you are you know, a cultural Christian 
or you're a religious one, you know, that tries to adhere to biblical principles, there are values and principles there that make for better lives. So, Reparations uh, would not change the lives of black people and it would just bring a, wor a worsening set of race relations for everyone. It's not the best way forward. I'm glad you brought up Judeo-Christian values and kind of, you know, tradition in the United States. Uh, I wanted to read um, something I, I pulled directly from the Black Lives Matter site on their What We Believe page. And it says, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families in, quote unquote, villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Are comfortable. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to un unpack in this statement, and I think in, in some ways, you know, the idea of, of having a support system around you is good. But but do you think that most Black Americans support the idea of disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family? Well, that's the problem with Black America today is that the Western uh, nu nuclear family has already been destroyed. And it was destroyed, um, you know, it started in the 1960s when Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote his uh, report about the Black family and how it was becoming dysfunctional. At that time, about 25% of Black households were headed by women. Now it's about 70%. And so those are people that are not following the traditional Western pattern of having a, a father in the household, mother, father their biological children, that's already been disrupted. And we know from numerous studies that children perform better when they have a mother and father. And um, and if they wait until they finish high school to start a family, they get a job. There are all sorts of practical ways out of poverty. And we're not telling our young people the truth about how to be successful. They're not hearing the, the success stories of Black conservatives who came from true poverty and were able to overcome that by having a work ethic and and by striving for the American dream. And I believe that the American dream is still available for anyone and everyone who's willing to avail themselves of it. I don't believe that systemic racism exists in the sense that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and others would argue Systemic racism is what I was born into in 1954, the year that Brown v. Board of Education passed. And I spent my uh, early school years in segregated schools. It took 10 years before schools in Virginia began to integrate. And so systemic racism is what existed before the passage of the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 the um, Civil Rights Act, 1965, the Voting Rights Act, 68, the uh, Fair Housing Act, that was systemic racism. And after that, the opportunities for Blacks and people of color, they have uh, been there. They have been there. And affirmative action has been there and it's benefited numerous people. But also just the fact that if you are a person of color, and you are bright, and you avail yourselves, yourself of opportunities, there's no end to the people who will encourage you and, and walk alongside you. 
And I can speak from my own personal experience of having been a high school dropout, one of 12 children born and raised in poverty. I was a teen mother uh, and wife. And I was able to go to a community college, get the first of five degrees. And the people who encouraged me, the people who were my role models, they were disproportionately white. Those were the people who took an interest in me. And I never felt that I was a victim because I happened to be black and poor um, and in unfortunate and and in an unfortunate situation. I had to work hard, but that's what America is all about. It's about having opportunities for people who are willing to work to overcome uh, their circumstances. And I think some of the situations that black people confront today and people of color confront is because we have forgotten who we are, but we don't always want to play by the rules. And one of the rules that I've always tried to play by uh, has to do with um, looking at successful people, trying to figure out what they did and emulating the things that they were doing that I felt had value. I've also respected authority most of the time. And when I say most of the time, I can tell you that at the universities and various places I've been, I've not been the person that kept her mouth shut. I've always spoken up. And I would say that uh, the university authority over me, there were times I criticized it. I didn't respect it enough to go along with it. But generally, I respect authority. Uh, it's so powerful to hear a little bit of, of your own story and everything that you overcame. And, uh, you know, you grew up in such poverty and yet were able to achieve so much. And that's so incredible to see when you when you think back on your own life and your own journey and then kind of looking at the family today. What what can we do and what are, are things that you have kind of, uh, you know, come across that you feel like this is what is needed to actually help strengthen and heal families in America? What well, truth is needed. And I find that there's so many people that are deceived and I see it in my own family and the propaganda, especially coming through the social media with with various videos but I don't think people have a true understanding of history. And one of the um, projects that I'm involved in is 1776 Unites. And what I love about 1776 Unites is that it's telling the, the full and true history of the black descendants of slave, slaves, but also the things that we were able to accomplish under the worst conditions. And I think that black Americans you know, the older generation, the older generation, you know, when we got into colleges, we were given an opportunity, but we had to work. We had to do the same work as everyone else. And we couldn't complain the way we see young people claim it, excuse me, the way we see young people complaining today about microaggressions. They got their feelings hurt or they think, you know, that the work is too hard and they want to be segregated. When you think about all the people who lost their lives fighting for integration, and we are at a moment in American history where black people and some white people that are helping them along, they want to resegregate. I mean, it, we're moving backwards. And I don't think people understand that success requires 
a particular mindset, that your attitude, your attitude about life and the world uh, is more important than your race, your gender, or your social class. And this whole idea that things are supposed to be easy, I don't know anyone who's been successful that would say that it was easy, that they didn't stay up and have to work long hours or have to work jobs that they um, were not happy on their jobs. They felt uncomfortable. They had a vision of where they wanted to go. And so they were willing to put in the time. I think people have lied to the younger generation. And I see uh, 16, 19, uh, the people behind that, I see on our colleges and universities that they are making victims of black people by saying, poor you, white people have to make it better for you. And to me, if I were part of Black Lives Matter or part of, um, well, Black Lives Matter, forget them. If I were uh, a black activist, I would be insulted by the fact that this seems to be a white person's privilege movement now. And um, I don't understand. What's that about? And they seem to have subscribed to white uh, supremacy. They're calling everyone a white supremacist, yet they're the ones that are really saying that white people are supreme to them, and they're looking for white people to deliver them. I find that very troubling. And the only way that we get around all of this is to somehow get young people back to reading history, understanding history, not calling it white man's history, uh, but read the Declaration of Independence, read the Constitution, uh, read the Bible, because our laws and our foundations of Western civilization, a lot of Bible is built into that, into Shakespeare, into um, just many of the great works of history to be a truly educated person and to be able to respond to everything that's taking place in the world, you have to have knowledge. And right now, people are being stripped of knowledge. They're very ignorant and they don't know what they're doing. And that's the scariest part of what's taking place. And they're being manipulated by people who have an agenda that's not even about them. One question that is our favorite to ask each and every one of our guests here on Problematic Women is, do you consider yourself a feminist and why or why not? I've never, you know, felt the need to call myself a feminist. And I can tell you that when I was in graduate school, all the feminists that I knew, they didn't wear makeup. They didn't um, look pretty. And I've always liked to wear makeup and look pretty. So <laughs> I'm not, um, I didn't like the, 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 the feminist look or the idea that to be a feminist, you had to check out a whole bunch of boxes. And as far as, you know, your podcast, Problematic Women, I guess a lot of people would say I'm a problematic woman because I don't fit. I don't fit anywhere. And I believe that uh, I'm a person of faith. Haven't always been, always spiritual, but not always a person of faith. But I believe that God has called me to speak truth, to, to speak it regardless of the cost. And there has to be some people who are willing to speak it and pay the price. And I paid an enormous price for being me. 
Wow. Well, and that's exactly why problematic women exist. We want to give a platform to people like yourself that don't fit in the mold of, you know, what, what a woman maybe is, is supposed to believe or, or talk about or stand for. Um, and so we're, we're really, really pleased to get to hear your perspective today. And you are such a powerful voice right now speaking truth. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about what you're up to, what you're doing, find your podcast? Yes, but I also want to tell people that I love people and I love young people of all races and it bothers me uh, to see any of them discriminated against or being shamed. And it angers me as if they were my own child. So that's part of how I feel as a mother and as a grandmother and I have children, and they're not all black. I have children, uh, and um, and I love them all. So that's um, and as far as my website, uh, it, it's be instead of we the people, be the people com. I also have my personal website, carolmswain dot com. I'm on Facebook as as doc dr Carol M. Swain, Twitter, Carol M. Swain, Parler, Carol M. Swain, uh, Instagram, Doc, Carol M. Swain. Well, it's been an honor talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right, now stay tuned because up next, we're going to be discussing the pro-life movement within the African-American community. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my other favorite podcasts called Heritage Explains. It is a weekly podcast that explains all the policy issues we hear about in the news at a one-on-one level. Host Michelle and Tim mix in news clips and music to tell a story, but also bring in heritage experts to help break down those complex issues. Like, what do we need to do about police reform? And what SpaceX historic launch might mean for our future? You can find the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Students for Life released a video a few weeks ago entitled Hashtag Why It's Important to Build Up African American Communities. The video specifically talks about engaging in the pro-life movement, and we found the video's release to be at such a pivotal moment. We recently spoke with Kay Coles James and Dina and Dee Dee Bass on this show, and they all made it clear that one of the topics we have to be talking about right now after the death of George Floyd is holding a value for all human life, whether that life is in the womb or the life of a 40-year-old African-American man. All life is precious and sacred and needs to be regarded as such. So we want to play this video for you all from Students for Life with Rikara Krajewski explaining how we can actually value all life. There are some unique challenges to mobilizing for life in the African-American community. Some people struggle to separate pro-life advocacy from party politics. Some people of color will say, if being pro-life means I have to support a political candidate I don't trust, then I can't be pro-life. Others will say, I don't want to identify as pro-life because I don't feel socially connected to others in the movement. Pro-lifers are often incorrectly stereotyped as judgmental or disconnected from the real challenges that women are facing. We must become more effective in communicating the pro-life message across communities. 
to help us unpack some of the points addressed in the video and to break down the discussion of the pro-life movement within the African-American community, I'm so pleased to welcome Petrina Mosley, who's worked for years in the pro-life movement, including previously at the Family Research Council and Concerned Women for America. Petrina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Now, to begin, could you just share a little bit of your own pro-life journey with us? Well, yeah. So I grew up in a Christian home and believed that the pro-life movement was uh, an important part of my faith. You know, it believed in protecting the sanctity of life, and it never really went past that. I didn't know the intricacies of what abortion did to a human child, and um, it wasn't until I attended college and took a worldview class that I learned about the abortion techniques, and I remember it being the most difficult class I've ever taken uh, because, because it was so uncomfortable. And at that moment, I realized that this was something that deserved justice, but I still couldn't quite figure out how, you know, I would play a part in that. And years went by, you know, I was a, a staunch pro-lifer, especially now knowing the, the intricacies of, of abortion, but it really did become personal for me until I got a hold of a documentary called My Alpha 21 that was put out by Live Dynamics, Inc., that really traced the eugenic roots of abortion and how abortion was a, a tactic to reduce those that the state felt shouldn't be reproducing at a higher rate than others. And those were the, those who were poor, disabled, and those of the minority community. So once I realized that, um, it became quite personal for me to, to be involved in the pro-life movement. Wow. Yeah, no, it, it really does make a difference, I think, when you have that kind of personal realization of, of wow, <laughs> yes, uh, mm -hmm. every, every life in the womb is a life. Uh, it's, it's really critical to yeah, have that kind of personal realization. So, you know, one of the things that was addressed um, in the Students for Life video was just that sometimes, you know, I'm, uh, you know, being a part of the white community, sometimes there, uh, there's just uh, kind of a, a disconnect or, or a lack of, of connection and just how to kind of properly address, okay, how do we as, as a full community embrace the African-American community within that pro-life movement. So if there was one thing that you would like to tell your white friends in the pro-life movement to be aware of, or maybe to stop doing, what would that be? Well, you know, coming into the pro-life movement, what I, the one question I got a lot being African-American was, you know, how did you become pro-life and why can't your people just get it? <laughs> and it's like, well, I understand how hard you want to, you want the African Americans to understand that, that abortion directly targets their community. But um, from my experience, the best approach is to uh, point out that there's no other right that matters except for the right to life. Because without the right to life, you can't experience no other right. So most African Americans, they have other concerns that are not pro-life. They're, they're thinking about you know, um, their economic stability, they're thinking about uh, wage gaps or, you know, just other things. And you want to say, look, these things, these other things that you care about, they do matter, but they don't matter when you're dead. Mm. And you, you know, you have to point these things out in the context of reality. When you're not alive, you can't experience these things. You can't experience these freedoms. You can't experience the benefits of 
other policies that actually uplift the African American community. And most importantly, you know, as African Americans are becoming uh, much more focused on social justice and policy issues, I think one of the most pertinent points we can point out is that abortion cuts, well, I would say dilute, let's use that word. Abortion dilutes the African American vote. Um, we are still the same percentage that, of population that we were in 1870. We're still less than 13% of the population of the U.S. That's the problem. Wow. wow. So when you look at the voting block and how to be a force to be reckoned with when it comes to other policy issues, you really can't have much of a say politically until you become um, more advantageous as a voting block, which we're not. Um, wow. So uh, to me right now, I think that's the most important point to point out, uh, especially on the rise of social justice issues. Um, so, you know, look, you want to have a voice, you want to, you know, fill in the, the wage gap, you want to have educational choice, you want to have um, access to the American dream and, and other great um, policies that are out there. Well, number one, you got to be alive and you got to increase your population to be a voting block worth reckoning for. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things I would point out. And how do we go about separating, uh, you know, the pro-life movement from being and the pro-life issue from being so political because at the end of the day <laughs> life and and the right to life it feels like that shouldn't be political and yet it's viewed as such a hot political topic it it really is and it's because of skillful marketing i mean you when you really look at the realities of abortion it's a variety of things a, a variety of methods it's you know, dismembering a child limb by limb in the womb, that's called the DNA. Um, you have the aspiration suction where you're sucking out a child from the womb. Um, and many can see that, that depiction in the uh, pro-life movie Unplanned, uh, featuring former Planned Parenthood manager Abby Johnson, now pro-life advocate. Um, you can also see infanticide, and that's something that the country has reeled with over the last year, literally leaving the child to die or putting the child to death by other means. So when it's marketed as a woman's choice, something that disgusting is marketed as a woman's choice for so long, that's the reality of what you're going to have to deal with when you're talking to people about the pro-life movement. And when you're talking to African Americans about the pro-life movement, they sincerely look at it as a woman's choice, even men now. Even men now look at it as a woman's choice and women's reproductive health. So we have to meet people where they're at and not try to force them to be where we want them to be. Right now where we're at is people believe that it is a woman's choice. It's women's reproductive health. But I think how you can dispel that false advertisement is with knowing what abortion really is and describing it. A great example of that is what President Trump did in the 2016 presidential debates. Uh, one of the debates he had with Hillary Clinton where he described what abortion was, and that, that rocked the nation. And it actually, I think, it swung the pendulum for him, uh, especially for conservatives, to see that this was someone who was going to be taking the pro-life issue seriously and willing to call out abortion for what it was. So it may be hard, may be disgusting, uh, but there's, there's tactful ways that you can discuss abortion. But when you're talking to people where they're at, and where they're at is that this is a woman's choice, it's okay to go into the realities of what abortion is and let them wrestle with that. People yeah. need to know. Um, when I found out about what abortion was, it changed the trajectory of my life, as I told you in the first question. Yeah. 
So what are some of those shifts or changes? You've mentioned some that that we have seen within the pro-life movement over the years. And where do you think we're, you know, really succeeding and on track? And in what areas is there really still a lot of room for growth and improvement? Well, I would say we've been really successful at persevering. You know, people thought that abortion was settled law in 1973, but it hasn't been. It's been over 40 years now, and we're, we're still fighting. And we have had a lot of success at the state level. I think we've passed over 400 pro-life laws just in the last decade. So we, we have a lot of success at persevering. I think that's our biggest strength as, as a pro-life movement. Um, second to that, I would say that we bring a human aspect, no pun intended, to, to the pro-life movement with our pregnancy resource centers. That movement started in the 80s and is just now become the gold standard of being in the pro-life movement is supporting pro-life pregnancy centers, donating to them, making sure that they have access to grants and funds, particularly now with the reformation of Title X. And now that those funds can't be used for abortions, some pro-life pregnancy resource centers have qualified for Title X funds now under this uh, reformation. So that's been a really great thing. But the human aspect of it is that it, it brings relationship to women in crisis. The abortion clinic can't do that. Planned Parenthood can't do that. They've never succeeded in doing that. The government can't do it. And they've only been successful in taking women's money and sending them out the door. Whereas pro-life movement, we've been really successful at building a relationship with these women giving them free resources, baby clothes, post-abortion healing, study classes, and walking with them to, you know, through that nine-month journey should they choose to adopt, place their child for adoption. So I think that's why we've really been successful, is bringing that human relational aspect to, to women in crisis and persevering. Now for <laughs> where there's still work to be done. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say the, the, the work to be done, the work ahead of us is, is definitely with chemical abortion. Uh, right now, chemical abortions, a.k.a. the abortion pill, comprises nearly 40% of all abortions being done in the U.S. And the scary thing about the abortion pill is that it's primarily an um, abortion method that takes place at home. So, number one, it's hard to track at-home abortions or, as the abortion community calls it, self-managed that's how they market it. It's self-managed. You can do this in the privacy of your own home. And you don't have to face those, you know, judgmental pro-lifers who are praying at Planned Parenthood. Um, but it's very, very dangerous. A lot, of, a lot of women have died, and thousands of women have suffered severe infections and hemorrhage to the point of needing blood transfusions. Um, but the abortion industry sees it as the best way to get around pro-life laws. And um, there's a battle ensuing between the FDA and HHS to remove restrictions that are on the abortion pill right now that are pretty flimsy, um, but the abortion industry wants to remove even those flimsy restrictions. So I would say that that's the next fight that we're in, um, is protecting women from the, the money-hungry abortion industry where um, they want to remove all restrictions off of women women's access to dangerous drugs to induce their own abortions. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the next fight. But like I said, our strength is perseverance. And if we can keep that, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll be ready to take on this next battle. 
Wow. Yeah, no, I think you're so right. I, I feel like I've personally seen that over and over, just that um, that gift that the pro-life movement does have to really personally connect with people and kind of allow those relationships to propel the movement forward. Um, as, as you're talking with other African-American leaders in the pro-life movement, what are their stories of becoming engaged? And, and what do you hear them saying about the movement? Oftentimes, pro-life African-American leaders I've talked with have been post-abortive. And I have found that the best warriors for the pro-life movement, particularly within the African-American movement, are those who are post-abortive because they've been there and done that. They've had the abortion. They experienced the grief. Um, they dealt with the bitterness. They dealt with the anger and the, the female uh, empowerment rhetoric that tells them to shut up about your grief and to just move on and take it as a badge of honor. And, you know, they, they tried to do that for so long to the point where they can't. And then they become a voice for the pro-life movement, knowing that they needed healing and they don't want other women to go through what they went through. So really the, the most powerful voices are those who are post-abortive. And they've written a couple of books to, to help women as well, share their experiences. And it's been really, really powerful. I would say one of the reasons why it's been so powerful is that most African-Americans are, are religious. They're the largest ethnic religious group in America. And appealing to their faith uh, is a real is a huge door opener to talking about the pro life issue because most times they they want to have a connection between um, their their abortion experience and their faith and oftentimes those women sitting in the pews have been post abortive and they crave the healing that comes from spirituality and faith and they crave someone to talk to that can identify with what they're going through so. Uh, when you look at the abortion statistics, over 30% of, of the abortions committed in the U.S. are done on African-American women. That's a huge number of women that are ethnic and, like I said, religious, who are sitting in pews, who need to hear someone say, I have a story and it may be just like yours. And that's been the most powerful that I've seen. Yeah, no, I, that's so uh, critical, that power of of storytelling. We know that valuing life, whether black or white, young or old, that it's critical to creating a safe and just society. So how can all of us who uh, are um, pro-life actively speak out that message and engage the community around us with that message of life? I believe it's important to keep saying that no other, no other freedoms or no other rights matter more than the right to life. Every American has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that includes African-American babies. African-Americans' lives, they matter from the womb to the tomb. All lives matter from the womb to the tomb. And it's okay to say that. No other right matters more than the right to life. And when you are alive, you're able to experience the benefits of democracy and our uh, justice system and our political system. Um, I mean, right now, I feel like we're, we're on the brink of change. Some good things are happening in the midst of some really terrible things. Yeah. But we're alive to experience them. And we're alive to make change. We're alive to be change makers. You know, what about those, those millions of African-American babies who could have been change makers who aren't here today? Their lives matter. And the best thing that you can do to really show that Black Lives Matter is to protect them from the womb from the moment of conception. 
and to say that, look, we're not going to follow in the footsteps of Margaret Sanger, who said that we don't want the word to get out, that we want to extinguish the Negro population. If you don't want to walk in that path, mm-hmm. then you protect them from the womb. Powerful. Wow. Petrina, thank you so much for the work that you're doing on the front lines. Um, it's really uh, just powerful and, and encouraging to to see, like you say, that continual movement forward and um, just that continual push forward. Uh, how can our listeners follow you and keep up with the work that you're doing? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter at Petrina P. Mosley. They can follow me there. That's the only social media platform I'm on because trust me, Twitter is enough. It is. It's in trouble sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly is. Petrina, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it too. Now it is that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Amid so many statues and monuments being defaced, some people have raised concerns over Mount Rushmore being next. Mount Rushmore, if you don't know, is that massive rock carving of Presidents George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln located in South Dakota. Ben Shapiro tweeted on Monday, So when is our woke historical revisionist priesthood, which I just love that, going to insist on blowing up Mount Rushmore? And Governor Nome responded, quote unquote, not on my watch. (laughs) Thank you, Governor Nome, for standing up for national monuments in America's history. And because of this, and because you were just such an awesome lady, we are proud to name you our Problematic Woman of the Week. Ah, so well-deserved. It's perfect. She is an incredible woman and a great role model. I I do want to bring up Virginia. We interviewed her at a Turning Point conference uh, about six months ago, and we we were late. We we had to get through Secret Service, and, and, you know, like, it just took forever, and, and... we finally get in and there's this woman standing in front of our booth and we were going to interview governor Christy Nome. And I like totally didn't cause this woman was like so cool. I think she was wearing like a, a green jacket and I was like, where's the governor? Where's the governor? And you walked over to her and she was like, Oh, Oh, governor Nome. I was like, there's no way this cool lady is the governor of South Dakota. And she was, and she was so kind. She was, she was so gracious because we were late and yeah, she was sitting there in her cowboy boots and I think she had, she had, yeah, I think she had a t-shirt on with like this cool uh, jacket over it and such, so gracious first off because we were late, but then also a very stylish woman. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, you think of a governor as like this old kind of curmudgeon person and not only she's great on the statue issue and just standing up to these leftist bullies, but yeah, just also a cool lady. All right. Well, now it is time for the Twitter question of the week. So last week, we asked you all to tweet about a book that has maybe been impacting you or challenging you recently. And Dr. Linda Pearson, she tweeted at us and she said, the one I'm writing, which I love. That's great. (laughs) I I watched the the Grey's Anatomy episode last night where the guy ate his own book. This week's Twitter question is, (laughs) do you have a favorite American statue or monument? Not seen that, Lauren. If you have a photo with that statue, we would love to see it. And please tweet at us and don't forget to use the hashtag problematic women. 
And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a fantastic week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.